This morning, we're in a, a week two. We started last week uh, the Gospel of John, and, uh, and what we started with last week was this question of, of what does it mean to really be alive? What, what does it mean to really have life? And obviously, we're all breathing, like we're all physically alive if we're here this morning. But what does it mean to really, truly be alive, like in that, in that spiritual sense, however you want to put it, to, to really have that purpose, that meaning, to wake up and, and be alive, to have that sense we looked at that last week because, well, as we saw, this, that's the point of John's entire gospel. John's gospel is focused like a laser beam on how we can have life with God through Jesus Christ. We talked about how Christianity in general is just, it's, it's a really a message about how we can have life with God. Theologians, we even use phrases like participating in the life of God, you know, participating in God and, and all these kinds of things. But it's like, what does it mean to have life with God? And specifically, what John's gospel focuses on is how do we find it? In Jesus. John says this at the end of his gospel. We're going to come back to this throughout the series, but it's kind of like a thesis statement uh, at the end of the gospel. He said, this is why I focused on what I focused on throughout it, because I had a point, one major point. And this is it, it comes from chapter 20. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I could have written about all kinds of things. All, I, I saw tons of things. Things are recorded in some of the other three gospels and whatnot that aren't recorded in John's gospel. John has, I think, something like 80% unique material compared to the other gospels. Uh, but he says, I included these because these help kind of you see in a specific way as Jesus does signs, as he teaches, as he heals, as all the things that he does, it helps you to see the glory of God. And if you see the glory of God, then you have life. See, this week we could start with another question, which is, have you ever been changed by seeing something? Have you ever just had your life completely changed, the course of your life, just the state of your being, you could say, by seeing something? I remember... The, the, the most poignant one I can remember in my life is the first time I saw my wife. Okay, so I, I come from, uh, I, I was at Ohio State at the time, and, and then my wife was from UCLA, and we, it was in New Jersey, okay, so all over the place. And, uh, and I got there, it was in Ocean City, New Jersey, also called Emotion City. Uh, and so I, we, I, I land there, and it's this college, Campus Crusade kind of summer thing, and I got there, and, and I, I met everyone, or so I had thought. And I was like, good, there's no, like, girls here who are going to distract me from Jesus, right? So super spiritual. And, uh, and so I, I come down the next morning, though, and I go around the corner, and my wife is standing there. And I remember I literally kind of, like, did this move, and I went, oh. Like, it just came out, like, this, like, deep, like, oh. Like, I just, my soul was like, what, what, who is this, right? And in that moment, whether, you know, we call it like falling in love and all that, it's like everything went fuzzy. She claims that she tried to talk to me, but I just kind of was like, uh, and I walked away. Like, I don't remember any of it, but I just remember that first time I saw her and it, it just changed me, right? And, and maybe there are things like, maybe, I don't know, maybe you saw one time like a, a building being built and it, and it, it, ca it caused you to to want to, like the course of your life, like the purpose of your life, like I want to be an architect or I want to be a designer, I want to start a construction company, or maybe you saw someone administer medicine or bring healing and you say, I, I feel like I'm called to be a doctor, or maybe it was something falling in love, or maybe you, you saw some kind of a truth for the first time and it gave you insight into the way the world works. See, here's the thing, what, there's this dynamic in human life, which is that when we see things, they can fundamentally change us. And what John says is we are meant, last week, we find life in Jesus. How? What John says, because it's kind of like the second half of the intro, you could say to John, in the verse eight, first 18 verses. Today, it's how. And what he says is you must see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. You must see the glory of God, because if you do, it will change you and you will never be the same. In fact, actually, there's this biblical word, because I think seeing, in some ways, in the English language, doesn't almost capture it. It's kind of passive. Like, you know, I, I wouldn't just say, yeah, I saw my wife, right? There's something more there. And, and biblically, this word oftentimes is translated as the word behold, behold. 
And, and it's, a, it's a helpful word because behold comes, I think it's Old English, it comes from the idea to retain, to contemplate, to cherish, to almost be possessed by that which you see. So it's more active, it's not so passive. And, and what John's going to say is we need to behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ if we want to have life. And so today what we're going to look at is how. How do we behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ? And first, we're going to start with the effect of glory, the effect of glory. What, what, when we see glory, what's the effect it has on our life? Then second, why we miss glory. Like, why is it that we, we, we tend to be blinded to glory? would be another way to put it. And then third, how to behold glory. How to behold glory. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, there, there are all these terms in John's gospel, all these words, light and life and glory. And Lord, we just ask that this morning, wherever there's darkness in our lives, wherever there's an absence of glory, wherever there's, we're not, we just feel death is having dominion over us. So there's no life. Lord, I, I pray that this morning you would do what only you can do through your word and life. Lord, whatever the areas of darkness are in our lives, deep darkness, Darkness we don't even know is there. Shadows. Lord, would you bring your light? Spirit, would you do that? By making much of Jesus. Through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, John starts in verse 6. He has kind of like this interesting aside. Uh, Verses 1 through 5 are, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it, and it goes, and He was the light of men, and, and He goes into that. And then down in verse 9, He kind of continues that. And then He talks about the, the true light, which was, gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, like that flows, right? Well, verses 6 through 8, there's almost like this, all of a sudden, he like, He's like, actually, I'm going to talk about something completely different. And He talks about John the Baptist, and, and it's kind of interesting, but it, it almost reminds me of... Um, because he's been going on about Jesus and the light and, and truth and the word. And then all of a sudden, he just goes over and he's like, oh, John the Baptist, let's talk about him. It reminds me of my, my son, Calvin. He's, he's five. And, and Calvin's one of those kids who's just kind of like impulsive. Like he's always like thinking about something. Like he'll come up to me. I remember the other day, he comes up, he's like, can I have this lollipop? Can I have this lollipop? I was like, okay, you can have that lollipop. So I'm unwrapping. He's like, you know Spider-Man? I watch this thing, Spider-Man. He has these webs. And I'm going to get Spider-Man gloves, and then I'm going to be able to do it. Do you think I could be able to do that? Where can we get that, Daddy? And I was like, uh, uh, here's the light. And he goes on about Spider-Man. And then literally I hand the lollipop, and he goes, can we have dessert tonight? Can we have dessert? Like, it's just like, huh, 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 right? Like, is John kind of like impulsive like that where he's like, hey, Jesus, he's the light of the world and, and, and he's the word of God and all that. Hey, John, John, have I told you about John the Baptist? You know, like, it, he's just, oh, Jesus, let's go back. Like, is he just kind of impulsive like that? No, I think there's a reason for why right here he inserts John the Baptist. Because what, here, let me just read it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So what's, what's John, by the way, clar, uh, clarify. Uh, John the apostle, one of the disciples of Jesus, wrote the gospel. This is a different John. Okay, this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was kind of like a prophet in the New Testament times who God called to make, kind of let people know about Jesus. And, and because of that, what John is doing here is I think what he's doing is he's saying, listen, Jesus has come into the world. And if you really know him, if you really see him, it'll fundamentally change you. And he immediately goes into the example of John the Baptist. And see, John the Baptist is going to kind of stand in almost for like an, an everyman for all of us to go, if you see Jesus like John saw Jesus, then it will change you like it changed John the Baptist. And so that's why there's this little aside, because what's going to happen is in verse 19, as the narrative gets going, it's going to talk for the rest of the first chapter about John the Baptist. And so he's going to come back to him. And what he's going to say is, look at what happens. It changed him. And look at what that effect is in his life. And what John wants to do is say, do you see Jesus? Because if you see Jesus, it's going to change you like John, and it's going to change your life. And you can literally watch John the Baptist and see how it changes his life. And I, I think what's interesting is he also refers, when he, he talks about John the Baptist to describe him, 
he says that he made known, it says his name was John, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. Now, when I read that, it kind of strikes me, uh, I don't know, like kind of woo-woo, you know? Like he hasn't taught, said Jesus' name yet, and John's like, he bore witness about the light, right? Kind of sounds like new agey, like why, why didn't he just say he bore witness about Jesus? Why is he talking about the light? Well, I think there are probably a couple of reasons for it. One, I think as Christians, you know, you hear like John the Baptist, he shared, he told people about Jesus, and you're like, well, yeah, we're Christians, we should share about Jesus, right? And you're like, check that, moving on in the narrative, right? But I think there's something else. I think that what happens, John knows when we come to his gospel, is we've already heard about Jesus, and we've kind of put him in a box, so he says, John just shared about Jesus. We will color that in with all of our assumptions about Jesus. So Jesus, the moral teacher. Jesus, the social revolutionary. Jesus, just the good guy. Jesus, the sentimental, sappy Hallmark card writer, right? Like, we're all going to fill it in with something about Jesus, or Jesus, the guy who flipped tables, right? We're, we're going to do that. But he, what John says is, listen, what really captivated John the Baptist was that he was everything. He's everything. That's why he says he's the light, that he's the life. See, here's, here's where he's going with it. Whatever brings light into the darkness of your life will become the source of your life. It'll become everything. And what he's saying is that John the Baptist had this light that came into his world, right? Think about how this works for us. When, when there's something like you're lonely, let's just go through a few darknesses. When, when you're the darkness of loneliness, and then you have a relationship that comes into your life, a new relationship, a new person, and it brings you joy, and it brings you happiness, and, and you're no longer lonely all the time, and what do you do? You begin to tell people about it, because that's become something that's so valuable to you. You begin overflowing with it. When, when you have, uh, all, you know, you, you feel disconnected from people, or you feel bored, or whatnot, and then all of a sudden you get this new gadget, right? A new iPhone, or you get Nintendo Switch, which I may have gotten recently, and I may be playing a little bit too much. But when, these things are so addictive. But when you get all these, and then you're telling people that, hey, have I showed you this new gadget? And they're like, you're 37, you should be playing with that. But, and you're showing all the people all these things, you're telling them, you get an iPhone, and you're telling them, we become missionaries for these things. Why? Because that thing has brought some kind of light into some area of darkness in your life. And we live literally have revolutionized world history in the last 20 years by creating forums, digital forums, where we spend all day going on and looking at what other people are presenting and sharing, and we go in and we present because there's something hardwired in us that when there's darkness and we find light, we find that whether you call it a problem with a solution, and we make it known. Why? Because it's become a source of life. And what John the Apostle is saying is that John the Baptist discovered that kind of light, that kind of life, relationally, intellectually, insight into the darkness of the world, what he didn't understand, what was uncertain. And what's interesting is John says when it becomes your life, it has an effect where you become a witness Witness is a very intriguing word because that word witness in the Greek is also, it's literally the transliteration of the word martyr. Witness is the same word as the word for martyr. Uh, martyr, like to lay your life down for something, to sacrifice yourself for a cause. And, and so what, what's happening there, it's not just he saw Jesus, okay, that's nice, but what happened is because it became his life, what that means is that now it's given him something to live for. Whatever is the light in your life, you will give yourself to. You will lay down your reputation for. You will lay down your money for. You will invest in that thing. You won't care what people say because it's so valuable to you. You go, this is my whole life. I breathe it in like oxygen, and so I breathe it out as well. It's just where I, I live. 
And so this is why we, you know, we call people with iPhones. You know, you have like the missionaries for Apple and they're out and they're telling everyone about it because it's like the best thing going on in their life, right? Like, I, I, will, I don't care at all what you think about me that I am a lifelong Cleveland Browns fan, okay? I love the Browns. They're part of my identity. And yes, until last year, we had like never won in my entire lifetime. But I don't care what you think about me. I will lay my reputation down to go to the mat for the Browns, right? Like all these things in our life, we will make them known. We will celebrate them. We will overflow with them. And we don't care. We will witness to them. Lay down our reputations. Lay down our very lives. And what we'll see is that for John later on, yes, he even literally laid down his life for Christ. And the effect of glory, the effect of seeing something that becomes your life, that is that beautiful and good and meaningful, is that it causes you to want to make it known. It causes you to witness to it. And we're going to come back to that again starting next week. We're going to follow John the Baptist in the narrative and see what that looks like, especially in our modern day. But what John goes into is he says, well, what, that's the thing. If you want to become fully alive or you're just overflowing with this reality of who God is in Christ, then why is it that we don't do it? Right? Well, that's where John actually goes next. He goes, we'll, we'll come back to John the Baptist. We'll talk about the effect of glory and what it looks like. But let's talk about why is it, what is it that blinds us to, what keeps us from seeing glory. That's where he goes in verses 9 to 13. One of the major themes of John's gospel will be why did Jesus have to come into the world? Because what he's going to go into in verses 9 through 11 is Jesus actually in one sense, like what, what John said, what we looked at last week in verses 1 through 5, has in one sense always been in the world. Look at verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He's talking about Jesus, the true light. He was in the world. So he says he's coming into the world. And one of the things with this scholar's debate, because the tenses that John uses are a little weird. John's obviously writing this after Jesus has uh, died on the cross, been resurrected, ascended to the Father's right hand. It's probably the latest gospel that was written date-wise. It was probably more like 70 AD or later. Other gospels were around like mid-50s to 60s AD. And so it's probably the last gospel it's written. It's been a while. And so the tenses that he's using, it's kind of difficult at times exactly what he's talking about. But it seems what he's saying is Jesus came into the world. And then what he's saying is even though he came into the world, though, at the same time, he's always actually been in the world. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. In other words, what he's saying is actually from before time began and, and even when all creation started, when time began, actually ever since then, you can clearly see the glory of God all around you. And all of it actually is pointing to something about Jesus. Romans 1 says that God's divine nature and his divine power, the fact that we're dependent upon God and that God leads our lives and everything is, gets its meaning from God, it's actually all around us. Glory is all around us. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1 says. Because again, as we saw last week, all of reality flows. It's through Jesus. It's made by him. It's sustained by him to this day. So the question is, why don't we see glory I mean, when I was driving in this morning, like everything, like you're looking at the blanket of snow and you're looking at a sunrise or a sunset. When I was driving in this morning with the snow, then there was this huge rainbow. I was like, why, why, does, why did God put us into a place where it, he demonstrates his goodness and his glory by giving things like we have sight and we see beauty and we have taste and we can taste, have taste buds that taste everything. Like it's just everything is actually saying, like, look, this is a God of delight. This is a God who's glorious. There's a, a rainbow, and it was, it was like, why, God, why does God make it so that, like, light, you know, like, moisture in the air, and light refracts after it just so he could say, I am gracious, <laughs> right? Like, the, and, and in fact, I, this is an aside, but Genesis, the bow, in Genesis, when it says he created the rainbow, it actually doesn't say rainbow, it just says he put a bow in the sky, because the idea is that it's like a bow, like an archer's bow, which was like the nuclear bomb at that time, the most sophisticated military equipment, and so they would, it was like, he said, I'm going to actually, where's the bow pointed? Up. And he's saying, in spite of the sin of the world, in spite of the darkness in the world, I will point all of my wrath, my judgment at me. I will take care. I will do something to save you from this. And every time it rains and it looks like my judgment will come down on you, it will scream from the heavens. There is grace. There is salvation. There is life in me. That's our God. And yet we can live missing it. How? 
How in the world? John does something interesting in his gospel. Again, this is the prologue, so kind of setting up a lot of the gospel. We'll go more in depth into some of these themes. But John's setting up a major, major theme here. Because he says they, they get, uh, here he's saying that they didn't know him. Somehow they didn't know him. How is that? John's gospel is kind of in two parts. The first half, chapters 1 through 12, is following Jesus around over a course of about three years, him and his disciples, John recording the signs that Jesus does, his teachings, his coming and goings. And the whole idea throughout there is seeing the glory of God in Jesus. Literally, we'll see this at the wedding of Canaan, the first miracle in chapter 2. There's almost a formula in John where he says, Jesus had this sign, they saw the sign, and they saw his glory in the sign, and when they saw the glory, they believed. Jesus demonstrated his glory in the sign, they see the sign, they believe. It's almost as if when they see the glory of God in Jesus Christ manifesting, there's this like magnet in their soul that just immediately goes, that's what I've been looking for. That's what I'm made for. That's the first half of John, and then what happens in the second half is it's essentially one week instead of three years, and it's the final week of Jesus' life, and he says, now that you have that reality in me and you've come to me, let me talk about what life is going to look like with me. And then the ultimate sign is the sign on the cross and resurrection. Now, why does that matter? It matters because John's so invested in us seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ, what keeps us from it? At the end of chapter 12, right before the second half, John says, let me give you a picture of all those who are going to be left behind who don't see my glory. And he describes them. And it's in chapter 12, and it says this. It says, nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What's John doing there? What John has been at pains to say for 12 chapters is you can see the glory of God at any time in Jesus Christ, but the thing that will blind you, that will keep you from seeing his glory is receiving glory from man. What does John mean by that? What does he mean by that? Well, if seeing the glory of God in Jesus is the key to having life in God, then I think what it means, the loving the glory that comes from man, it means we find our lives through our sense of meaning, our identity, our purpose, our, our sense of self. We find it through what others think of us versus what God thinks of us. That's a simple way of putting it. See, hold, uh, glory, I should define it. Glory is holiness gone public. The idea of glory is just that God, think of God as the sun, like the burning uh, center of his, his character and his love and his delight and his perfection. And, his, and then what happens is that emanates out in the sun rays, and that's like glory. It's that holiness going public, going outward, which is why I think it's very fitting that Jesus referred to as light on many levels. And so what he's saying here is there is something about where instead of receiving that glory and basking in that glory and seeing in God, there's something that can actually take its place that's a lesser glory and we'll see glory, we'll find our glory in it. We'll find our sense of self. We'll find instead of starting with what really, who am I and what's really going on in my soul, we start with the outside with the rays and we look at what people are saying about us. Comparing ourselves. And I think there's something, too, just the fact that why people, why isn't it our, our career, why isn't it our intelligence, why isn't it all these things? I think it's, it's man, we receive glory from man because all those things, actually, when I'm successful, I look to other people, like a feedback loop, to tell me you're successful, you're doing something with your life, you have meaning, you're, you're so intelligent, you're so attractive, you're so on and on and on. We look for other people, and here's what happens. When we do that, what begins to happen is we have this feedback loop where we begin to believe, I actually have no need of anyone else. <laughs> when I was contemplating this, I was thinking in our modern world, talk about the dynamic that we are really, really enmeshed in. Again, going back to the, how we revolutionized the world economy, 
we live so much of our lives in the digital space or sphere where it is designed around the ability to create an echo chamber that just reinforces our opinions and our views, and specifically of ourselves. And, and we also live now so distanced from one another. We're not in a communal culture as much anymore, and we're distanced from one another. And so the way we see one another and interact is that we project out into the world only the parts that we want people to see, right? Whichever will get the most likes. And then, so what happens is we can project this me out there, and then people see that me that I'm projecting, that's the good me, that's the successful, the beautiful, the smart, the always got it together, right? And then they, they're liking and thumbs upping and emojiing and whatever the other things are that people, you do nowadays. But you, they're, they're reinforcing it, and it creates this feedback loop where you go, look, I'm glorious. When that begins to happen, you, you don't have a need for forgiveness. You're not dependent on anyone. You can actually have, be satisfied in this view of yourself. And John says that blinds us. It blinds us. Seeing glory. You know, it, it really hit me when preparing this when I realized, I was just thinking about like over the last few years, I found myself struggling a lot with, I guess, impatience, at times smugness, contemptuousness towards other people. And, and as I was thinking about this and I was reading, I was thinking about like the digital sphere and all that, and I realized a lot of this has happened while being so much more online and in those spheres with, and not so much with people, with, with COVID and all the other things that have happened, that have brought our lives more and more into those spheres. And, and I don't know if you feel it too, but I, I feel like this dynamic of receiving glory from man and it creating a feedback loop where we just receive glory, receive glory, receive glory. And what happens is that feedback loop just crowds out to anything else. And then you find character things kind of starting to develop that you go, that, if you're honest with yourself, isn't healthy. It's kind of ugly. I know I did. What's happening there? Well, I think often when we live in that place where it's like the feedback loop is always telling us we're right, we're righteous, we got it together, we're good, what starts to happen is we start to elevate ourselves. And the, the word contemptuous actually is a good word for it because contemptuous comes from, it means essentially to kind of stand above someone. So it's, the idea is you're on the, think of yourself as a judge on the bench of life, looking out at the world around you, and you're looking down at everyone else in life. They're on a different moral plane. It's lower than you. I'm here, you're here. Contempt is looking down morally on people. And, and what happens is after a while, we begin to kind of sit in that place, sitting there on the bench, looking down at life, looking down at everyone else, going, well, I know that I've got it all together. I'm glorious here. And it begins to breed this contemptuousness and this bitterness and this sneering pride. And if you're the judge and you're the jury, what are you going to ever listen to a judge above? because you've got a courtroom that runs by your own standards. See, what John is talking about, that maybe gives a word picture. He's talking about the fact that when we get glory from man, our sense of self, that it's okay, that we got it together. When we get it from man, what happens is it blinds us to that true source of glory, that true source of life, and we begin turning to things in this world, and it becomes such a powerful feedback loop that it never gets broken. So what do we, what do, we do? Well, John goes on, and he says in verse 12, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John says here, just like he's gonna, he said at the end of his gospel, he says it's belief. I want you to be able to believe in his name, in his name, have life in his name. And why does he say that? Well, in the first century, you would name someone, and the naming kind of discloses something about their character about their life. Like right now, we just kind of like, we look up like cool names and we name our kids cool names like Apple, right? Like, and you're like, oh, that's a cool name, right? Uh, I don't know. I just saw an apple, you know? Um, and so <laughs> Patagonia, where'd you get that? Uh, from a hat, but it sounded really cool. So my kid's named that for the rest of his life. Uh, so with, 
But in the first century, what they would do is they would name someone based on their meaning. And so what he's saying is, I want you to have life in his name because his name discloses his character and who he is. So he's Jesus. John said at the end of his his gospel back in in chapter 20, he's Jesus Christ, the son of God, Jesus. Jesus is just the New Testament Greek form of Joshua from the Old Testament. He's saying Jesus is the one who's going to lead you into a promised land. He's one who's going to lead you over the river Jordan. He's going to lead you through judgment. He's going to lead you into a new place, and he's going to cleanse you and make you new and make you a place where God can dwell with you and be one with you. He's the Christ. The way he will do it is he will lay down his life. He's the anointed one of God who will give himself, who rules by serving, who rules by dying, who rules by bringing grace and mercy, and his love goes before him. But also his judgment He's the Christ who brings about his reign. And then it gives like this, he's the son of God. I think that's why John immediately goes into making us children. We become children of God. He is the son of God, and he makes us brothers and sisters. He makes us part of the family. We get adopted in. It's not just some idea out there, but he says, welcome in to the family. And the way... John is saying that we become new, born, like being born anew. This is why John, at the beginning of his gospel, starts with when creation happened, Jesus was there. And then he says, he brings that up and he quotes from Genesis at the beginning of his gospel because he's saying, just like God at the beginning, he made something completely new and he spoke it into existence. He did it over the darkness. He calmed the sea. He he created it. Now, no matter what darkness you have, no matter what's unwieldy, no matter what brokenness you have, God will recreate it in this one. And he's making you new because he's Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And what's new is you will be made new through him and you will be a part of my family. And he says, then there will be nothing more truer of you than that fact. And he says, that's why he goes into, he says, it's not, it's not by the, by blood. It's not by pedigree. It's not by where you're from. It's not by who you know. It's not by who you're dating. No one's going to stand before the throne of God and and say, well, I came from a good Christian family. I, I chose the right church, right? Like, no. It's not by blood. It's by the blood of Christ. Nor is it by the will of the flesh what you do, what you're capable of. The fact that maybe, I mean, think about it. Is it, I'm a Christian and and I know God and I have life in him just because I have a better spiritual temperament and I'm better than other people? I mean, no, it's because God has done something. It's not what we do. It's not what others think of you, the will of man. It's not what you do. It's not what others think of you that defines you. It is what God has done and what he says of you in Christ. So the question is, like, where are the places where you're, what, what are the things that are flowing out of you that you're finding glorious, that you're, where are the things that your eyes are beholding? And the question is, how is that changing you? Are there things that are keeping you from seeing the glory of God? John goes on and says, I I want you to be possessed. To see the glory of God and find life there. So lastly, he goes into how. How do we behold the glory of God? In verses 14 through 18. Another way way of saying all this is that we, we live in a world of counterfeit glories counterfeit glories, you know, like monopoly money type glories, right? And, and you know, I've, if you studied marketing, I love studying marketing. I think it's fascinating. One of the things you'll find is that everything in our world, we, we live in a world of counterfeit glories because literally marketing and advertising and our entire economy flows around. It's an attention economy, right? And so everything's uh, monetized by getting your attention so you would see advertising, which tells you it's all built around messaging that says, find that glory here, Find your identity, find your meaning, find your purpose, find love, find your way to get everything together, find control, find it through this product. We will provide it for you. We live in a world where we're constantly overwhelmed by counterfeit glories. And that's before we even get just to the human element of pickup artists and whatnot who who leverage the fact that we are all looking for glory and they can offer a little taste of it, but it's actually a counterfeit that doesn't actually 
it, it writes checks that it can't cash. And so what does John do? You probably have heard the old thing, how do you know a counterfeit? Is you say the real deal. Right? People who, who know counterfeit money, like the, literally people get paid to do this apparently, you, you, to, to tell counterfeit money or to tell counterfeit diamonds or whatnot, is you just, they study the real thing. They don't learn about counterfeits, they just know the real thing. So it's like, if I walk into a jewelry store and I'm like, do I buy that $3,000 diamond ring or do I buy this $100 one that looks the exact same, right? Like, which one am I going to buy? I don't know, you'll find out, right? So I don't know the difference, but they walk in and they go, that's the real one, that's the fake one, right? Immediately. How do they do that? They say the real thing. What John says is if you want, you live in a world of counterfeit glories, if you want to know the real deal so you don't keep starting and stopping life and digging cisterns and trying to find life that just run dry over and over again, then you need to know, you need to behold the real deal, Jesus. So I'm going to walk through these verses just doing kind of an outline of three uh, Three ways that we can behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Three ways that we can do it in Jesus Christ. Uh, and here's the thing. The reason why I, I know these aren't going to be like profound, but one of the things is as we as a church, I feel it. Like we're behind the scenes, we're working on kind of like what's like with five year vision. And there's just like this, I feel like we're primed as a church right now with things going on in the city of reaching our city. It's like this question of what's next. We've come out of kind of this church planting phase. And now it's like, what are we doing long-term campus city and really reaching? And I feel like God is getting like, it just feels like it's pent up and ready to go. And one of the things is instead of running ahead to the mission, just like here, John says, we're not going to just jump right into all of the disciples with Jesus and getting busy with him, but first we need to pause and say, are your eyes really on the life, the light of the world? And we as a, this is where churches get in trouble. This is where we as Christians get in trouble. Is it's so easy to run ahead and just get busy. And what this season is as a church is us saying, no, we want to focus and see Jesus and behold him and behold him every day and establish patterns in our life and in our lives with one another so that we see him at all times. So it's not always we see the mission and then we push Jesus to the side. But instead, we would see that mission through the lens of Jesus and the glory of God. Because it's so easy to miss, because what John says in verse 18 is actually God is invisible. We can't see him. He says in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So how do we see God? God is not matter. God created matter. He's above matter. God is outside of all space and time, the space and time continuum. How can we see him? How can we behold him? Well, first, John says we can behold in his word. In verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when, when he says we have seen he came, uh, the word became flesh. This is literally where theologians get the term incarnation. Okay, one of the things we'll see throughout John, John is one of the richest books. John and Romans are where people argue, the richest book theologically. And so a lot of theology, if you've heard that term, comes from especially John. So the word incarnation means in flesh. It's a Latin term. So in incarne, like incarne asada, right? Never going to eat your burritos the same again, right? So in flesh... He came in flesh, and he dwelt among us, right? Now, when it says then that he, he dwelt among us, what does that mean? You could be like, well, Jesus came in flesh. Okay, we came at one point in history. What's the significance of that? Well, when it says dwelt, there's, John uses a specific word that comes, it's a Greek translation of a Hebrew word that's used to refer to the tabernacle. Okay, now what's, what's the tabernacle? Why is that important? When it says that he dwelt with them, it literally says he tabernacled with us. And why that's significant, and John, I won't be able to unpack it, but you could read Exodus 33 and 34, and there's a lot of significance of what John's actually alluding to here um, with some of the terminology. But what happened was Israel, when they wanted to be near God after he saved them, he, would, uh, he came into a tabernacle, which was a tent. The temple had not been built yet. 
and it's essentially while you're traveling through this world on your way to the next, uh, God will come and he will establish himself and be near you. His glory will be present in this tent, but you can't actually see him. He can just be near you, but he'll be with you. And so what Jesus does is he takes that term that's loaded and he says, I will tabernacle with you now. In other words, now I will come into the world and they will be where God's spirit, where God's holiness, where God's glory resides. And I will come into the world and it will now reside in me. And John's going to develop, Jesus is going to develop that theme later where he's going to say, and now not only does God dwell in tents and not only is he near you, but now you are becoming that new tabernacle. You're becoming that new temple because of the work I've done and now I can dwell in you. And not just be near you, but in you. And on and on. He says, Jesus has come to make God known. And he's made God known in his word. Now, I know... Well, let me say this before... In verse 18, when it says made known, I, I should say, I'm like, okay, it made, made God known. It's another word that's significant. There's a lot condensed in these few verses. The word, the Greek word that's used there is actually the same word we get, if you know the word exegete or exegesis, or to interpret. It, it literally means to draw out of something. And so what, what's happening here is John is saying Jesus is the way that you can exegete God. It's the way you know him. It's the way you interpret him. If you want to know God, you can know him in Jesus. He's the interpretive key. If you don't have Jesus, you can't know him. If you don't have his life, if you don't have the history of how God is related to his people and how Jesus has fulfilled that, you cannot really know God. And so we need to be in his word. We need to be reading what is true about Jesus. And here's the thing, not just thinking happy thoughts about Jesus and making it up as we go. God has recorded it so we would know it, so we don't just kind of veer off in fantasy land. But it's not just that we would have facts. It says in verse 18 again that Jesus was at the Father's side. Uh, the literal in the Greek there is that he was in the Father's bosom. Now, that's not a word we use very often now, right? Come, come lay your head on my bosom, right? We don't use that, that language very often now, but what, what does that mean? It means literally, it's like an intimate picture of being sad, like a child would rest on their mother's bosom, right, right here on their chest. And, and so the idea is that you would come intimately close to me, and what Jesus says is, I am at the Father's bosom. I'm intimately close to him. And why is that significant for us? That's good for you, Jesus. What does that have to do with me? John, in chapter 13, when we get to the next part of the gospel, after he sees his glory and he draws near, what does John record himself doing? He's leaning, it says, reclining at the table with his head on Jesus' bosom. So why does God invite us to even know him, to see him in his word, to behold his glory? Not just so we would look at it from afar, but he invites us near. He says, you need to draw near to me. And in Christ, you can draw near to me to put your, lay your head down in my bosom. Like every morning. So when we, you think about like in the morning, being God's word and reading about, don't think about it just like I'm getting facts and figures so I can argue my way through the day. I just got to check some boxes. It's more like my, my daughter, Clara, she's three. Uh, in the morning when she, she wakes up way too early, and she always wakes up, and she stands at this gate at her door, and she goes, Papa, 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 Papa. I don't need to set an alarm. Like, if, if, if I'm not up by then, I'm, I'm up, right? Because it just keeps going until I'm up. And I come, and then as soon as I go out, she throws up her arms. She goes, hold me, hold me every single day. Hold me. And then I have to hold her, and then she gets her blankie, and she gets her little patsy, and then I walk her in, and then if I'm already reading, I sit her in my chair, and I'm drinking coffee, and I'm reading the Word of God, and she's sitting there, and she just nuzzles right up on my side. In fact, yesterday morning, they're out of town this weekend uh, to see family, and, and yesterday morning, I get up, and I, I missed it so badly. Like, and, and that's the picture, though, that God is giving us, where he's saying, I want to draw near to you. And every day, you wake up my child, you wake up every day and your soul is crying out to the world around you, hold me. Stock market, give me security. Job, give me significance. 
every single day we're waking up and we're, our souls are crying out, hold me, hold me, hold me. What's your life, what's your soul directing itself to, to hold you? And your heavenly father is saying, let me hold you. Come to me, hear my word. Let me hold you in truth. Let me hold you in this eternal reality. Let me hold you within myself. Draw near. Let me hold you. We need to behold the glory of God and the word of God every day. It's a place where there's truth. We know we're not making it up or we know that we're truly being held. And then we go throughout our day. We don't know what's going to happen. But we do know no matter what fails us, no matter what comes at us, we do know that he will never fail us. And you're held in that truth. The second way is behold Jesus in community. It says he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. There's something about in Christian life about we are made in the image of God, but we're made from community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, for community. We're made in the image of God, and part of that is that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's why we want relationships. It's not, it's not a bug, it's a feature. Human or, you know, solitary confinement is one of the worst ways you can punish a human being for a reason. We're designed for relationships. And also, when we get together with one another, just like we study a diamond, we begin to see God from different angles, from different people's experiences, from people's different, different insights as the Spirit gives them knowledge and insight through their life experiences and all the different things. And so I would encourage you right now, if you do not have established some pattern of being in life with other believers... Please establish that pattern. One of the, uh, this last week, our, our um, CG, community groups are what we do here at Anthem for kind of life on life throughout the week. We're kind of big church becomes small. And uh, we usually talk through the sermon passage. And the, our group is trying something new this right now where we go in the mornings and we get together separately, men and women, different days of the week. And this week, man, it just hit me. Starting my day with other men in the Word of God, and hearing their insights and their prayers from different angles, it was just, it was like turning the diamond. And, and you, we need others in our life. Our insights, our knowledge, if you're a theologically driven individual, listen, you don't have enough insight in and of yourself. You need other believers. You, you cannot see your blind spots. You cannot see the fullness of the glory of God. God wants us to have a diverse array of believers in our life that are speaking into our life and enjoying him. My, how encouraging that was. I would encourage you, get connected. Uh, you can do that underneath the lights. Uh, and so whether it's here, but just find community and be intentional with one another and contend for life for one another. And lastly, uh, we behold Jesus in confession. So we got the word, community, and confession. So what does it mean in confession? Uh, he says that Jesus... Uh, reveals the Father, and then verse 16, for from, because, how did Jesus reveal the Father? For his fullness, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. What does that mean? Grace upon grace? What, what's he talking about there? Well, now he's, keep reading. A lot of times, by the way, when you're asking questions about the Bible, the thing is keep reading. It usually unpacks it. For, why do we receive this grace upon grace? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus. So there's the law and then grace and truth. Oh, grace upon grace. The law is a grace. And then grace and truth, we get this fuller grace in Jesus. What, what does that mean? Because some of you are like, I read my Bible. It talks about in Romans, like the law, we're cursed because of the law. Or Galatians, like what, what are you talking about, right? The, the law, how can it be a grace? Well, the, the law is a curse because we don't fulfill it. If we fulfill the law, it wouldn't be a curse. What is the nature of the law? Why is it a grace? The law, and I think what he's referring to here, you, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments. That makes it easy to think about. But they mean the entirety of the Old Testament, the entirety of what God has commanded his people, all the ethical requirements of his people. Why would that be a grace? Well, if, as John has started off, God, all of reality as we know it in the world is created through God, then that means not only is all being and whatnot, does it kind of resonate or declare something about the glory of God, but also it means that the world is hardwired with certain ethical realities. So the Ten Commandments were not just made-up rules that God thought, no, nah, let's add these, and if, you know, later on society advances far enough, we won't need them anymore. No, if you murder someone, you will psychologically break down. If you cheat on your spouse, you will emotionally have issues. 
there are ethical realities in the world that are given by God that are hardwired into the universe. The law just makes them known. Therefore, the law is a grace because it makes it known. And not only does it make it known, but it's a grace because when we read God's word, when we see God in action, we see this God who is holy, who doesn't fail, who is always faithful, who doesn't steal, who doesn't rob, but always gives life. And on and on we could go. And we see him, and then we see ourselves. And it's a grace because we realize that gap. And we realize we do not have life in ourselves. We do not have righteousness in ourselves. But we've fallen short of not something that we can just make this tiny little kingdom of glory and queendom and kingdom that just gives us a feedback loop of glory to ourselves. But we are meant for that glory. And the grace that comes upon that grace when we have that moment of insight is the grace of God in Jesus Christ, him coming into the world, down into our little kingdoms and entering it and saying, do you see bringing light and saying, do you see the darkness? You don't have to be afraid of looking at the darkness because I brought life, I brought mercy, I brought grace. And the greatest revelation of God's glory is Jesus Christ coming to bring his grace and his mercy because it puts on display ultimate love, eternal only God's love, which puts on display the only Son and the only unique relationship from eternity past that ever existed between Him and the Father. And every day, what John is saying is be in God's word, be in confession, fall before him, keep your eyes on him, and then throughout your day, you will begin to have everything through that filter of glory. And what I would ask you again is, what are you beholding? How is it changing you? This week, just think about what are the things that I'm kind of like muscle memory? I'm so used now to just looking at all the time. And begin to think, what does it look like to turn my gaze to Christ and begin to see him, to begin to contemplate him, just even in the beauty of creation around me, what does it look like to do that throughout your day? Listen, it's not a question of if we'll behold something. We will behold something. Our lives will be built on something. Something will be changing us. Something will be transforming us. We will be beholding something. And what John says is we are meant to have life by beholding the glory of God in Jesus Christ to find joy there, to find freedom there. That's where it all begins. And so John invites us to slow down daily and behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Because if we do, he says, we'll never be the same. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, where you make Jesus known. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have a record of that reality, a living word that makes known to us, Jesus, why you came. Spirit, I ask this week that you would reveal to us where we're beholding, what are literally our eyes are beholding, what we are taking in, what we are retaining, what we are dwelling on, what we are marinating in, whatever the, the word is, Lord, whatever possesses us. Lord, we live in a world where counterfeit glories possess us not for good. But Lord, you, you possess us for good. You've bought and you've purchased us in Christ for good so we might have life in your name. And so Lord, would you this week, would you help us to see where we're looking to counterfeit glories? And Lord, would you help us to cast our gaze on eternal glory in Jesus Christ? We ask this in his name. Amen.